we're going to move on to Marion now. Um, Marion is going to speak to us about moral discernment in the Abraham and Sarah narrative and make some observations for contemporary pilgrims. Over to you. Thank you very much. Can everyone see me and hear me? Although seeing's not so important in this case. Uh, okay, thank you. So uh, thank you for inviting me to take part in this and it's wonderful to be part of a rather large Scottish contingent today. So the title of the paper is Moral Discernment in the Abraham and Sarah Narrative, Observations for Contemporary Pilgrims. In Christian tradition, Abraham is considered to be the father of faith. As Paul notes, Abraham is said to be righteous because he believed God's promise that he would be the father of many nations. In the letter to the Hebrews, Abraham's faith is exemplary because of his trust in God's goodness and holding on to what he has promised. In James, Abraham's faith is seen in terms of his obedience to God. The early fathers saw both Abraham and Sarah as moral paragons. For St. Anthony, Abraham's journey is an allegory for the spiritual life. The patriarch was searching for the discernment of the good and his journey is a pattern for us to follow. According to Ambrose, Adam had allowed himself to be distracted by pleasures, but Abraham turns towards virtue. So according to the earliest theologians, Abraham is either the exemplar of trust and obedience, or whose belief in God's promises ensures the covenant continues, or he is the truly virtuous man whose pilgrimage leads him away from vice and towards wisdom. Whichever emphasis we choose, the tradition has been that Abraham, and to a lesser extent, it's Sarah, are exemplary characters, and we can learn much from their lives. There are spiritual parents who can guide us on our journey. But I wonder how far this is the case. And in this paper, I want to explore the narrative, looking at how Abraham and Sarah are depicted and how they conduct themselves in relation to God and to other people. I'll adopt a, a literary approach and I'll consider the story in its entirety as we have it in our Bibles. And I'll draw insights also from reception history. What can the story teach us about moral discernment in the life of faith? And we'll dip into both Jewish and Christian reception history. The narrator tells the story simply, seldom offering comments. Readers are left to make up their own minds as to characters' behaviour on the basis of incidents and dialogue. Nevertheless, the first few verses of the narrative indicate that Abraham is to be seen as a man of faith, and this emphasis is maintained throughout. Prior to Abraham's arrival on the scene, the Genesis story has featured rebellion, death, and finally scattering. And Abraham's response to God's call brings us back to a new beginning of faith and obedience. The patriarch sets off on his journey and he takes Sarah and Lot with him, not knowing where he's going. From the outset, we the readers know that this is a man to watch. As he, as he proceeds, he builds several altars and religious ritual helps him to discern what God is saying. But this isn't mere religiosity. Abraham is also a man of prayer. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He hears from God in dreams and visions. He is obedient. He leaves out of the Chaldees without demur 
and obeys the command to have himself and all the males in his household, including slaves, circumcised. He is obedient and loyal in the face even of, of overwhelming evidence that the promises of land and progeny are, seem unlikely to be fulfilled. His reputation as a man of faith then seems unassailable. There are some caveats, however. Some suggest that his trip to Egypt during the famine betrays a lack of trust in Yahweh's ability or willingness to provide for his household's need. <coughs> Excuse me. His offering of Sarah as his sister twice has been seen as a failure to trust God. His laughter when angels tell him that Sarai will soon have a child, his protestations that Eliezer of Damascus should be his heir, and his impregnation of Hagar have all been interpreted as expressions of doubt <coughs> with regard to the promise. In the overall story, however, these are mere aberrations. They're just human slips in an otherwise exemplary life. The comment of the narrator captures the theme of his life. When God promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the star, as the stars, Abraham believes, and it is credited to him as righteousness. Unfortunately, religiosity and obedience tell us little or nothing about the true nature of a person. It is possible to be religiously and theologically correct, but to be a very flawed character indeed. It is possible for a person to believe that he is obeying God, but to have ulterior motives and selfish aims. The only way to determine a person's character is by looking at his or her dealings with other people. So we'll consider Abraham's social, business and political activities as they are recorded in the narrative. And two things stand out here. First, Abraham is peaceable. True, his methods might be questionable as when he pretends that Sarah is his sister uh, with Pharaoh and Abimelech, and we'll return to these later. But these episodes seem to have fear rather than hostility at their root. He has no designs on others' territory. When trouble erupts in Egypt, he leaves quietly. And in Gerar, he enters into a treaty of mutual respect with Abimelech. He's also loyal. He allows his nephew to take the fertile Jordan lands himself. And when this leads to trouble, he sends his militia to rescue him. Kinship is important. He also argues with God, insisting on justice when it seems that entire cities are going to be destroyed because of the behavior of some of the citizens. According to Nahum Sarma, Abraham's dialogue with God here involves a concern for the welfare of others, for total strangers. Abraham displays an awareness of suffering and an ability to respond before, beyond his immediate personal interests. He shows himself to be a moral man, a compassionate person. In this age before the law was given then, he seems to demonstrate a sense of natural law. He also seems to have a sense of the character of God as God of justice. At a post-battle meeting with the king of Sodom, Abram refuses to give him the people back, but he also refused to take any goods from him except the food the men have eaten, declaring that he has made an oath to God that he would give the king of Sodom no cause to say, I have made Abraham rich. 
Is this something to do with dirty money? He makes sure, however, that his men have their share. Second, wealth does not seem to lead him into moral difficulty. When God chooses the fertile Jordan area, he's not greedy or self-seeking, and he doesn't impose his seniority on family members. Grasping Lot loses everything while Abraham's wealth increases. Melchizedek, as king of Salem, blesses Abraham and pays tithes to him, which Ambrose interprets as humility. He might have taken from the king of Sodom, but refuses to do so, although he ensures that his men take their share. When God appears to Abraham near the trees of Mamre in the form of three men, he offers lavish hospitality. In general, then, Abraham's activities suggest a man who is virtuous in matters of business, hospitality and diplomacy. He's not perfect, but there is integrity in his dealings with others. The relative orderliness of Abraham's life is sharply contrasted with the chaos and greed of Lot and the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, Abraham may be loyal to and gracious with Lot, but his treatment of his wife and his female slave and even of his children raise many questions. The two occasions when he pretends that Sarah is his sister have troubled scholars. Is Abraham a coward to let Pharaoh take Sarah into his harem and failing to protect her honour? Should we be concerned about his deceitfulness? Many, including Augustine, let Abraham off the hook with regard to deceit because Sarah is actually his half-sister. Cowardice and dishonour are counted by Gun discounted by Gunkel on the grounds that the practice of using one's sister in this way was not unethical in that culture. The story, he says, glorifies the intelligence of the patriarch, the beauty and self-sacrifice of the mother, and especially the faithful help of Yahweh. Mark Biddle thinks Abraham's actions inept and clumsy rather than dishonest, and suggests that the tales underscore the divine plan for Abraham to be a blessing to the nations despite his behaviour. Jewish commentators have been perturbed by Abraham's behaviour in these stories, and they've come to various conclusions. The Book of Jubilees exonerates Abraham and Sarah by saying that Pharaoh took Sarah by force for himself. Radak, the 11th century commentator, considers that Abraham had to make a choice between two evils. Both are at risk of being killed and his wife at risk of abuse. It is better for Sarah to be violated so that both may survive. Now, as you can imagine, contemporary feminist scholarship takes a, a different view to that one. From this perspective, Abraham traffics his beautiful wife in order to save his own skin. Sarah, who has no choice in the matter, stays in Pharaoh's harem and he makes a profit, showing no concern for her well-being whatsoever. In Gerar, it is Abimelech who, who averts the possibility of impropriety with a foreigner's wife and guards Sarah's honour. We are also now far more able to appreciate the nature of Hagar's powerlessness and lack of voice and the compassion that God shows her when Abraham and Sarah show none. 
it is pointed out that Hagar, as a female slave, has no rights at all. And so her, impregnant, her impregnation by Abraham could be seen as rape. When she and Ishmael are sent away, Abraham's distress for his son is encouraging, but he does not apparently have any concern for Hagar. Weak in the face of pressure from Sarah, he sends his slave and son into the desert, most likely to die. Bruce Chilton says that after the birth of Isaac, Abraham's character has all the staying power of a weather vane. Above all, it's the story of the Akedah in Genesis 22, which has raised most doubts as to Abraham's integrity. Following the narrator, Abraham is tested by God. When, according to the narrator, sorry, Abraham is tested by God. When he's told to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, he obeys without question. At the last minute, God provides a ram and Isaac's life is saved. The story has disturbed people for centuries. What sort of a God would ask a father to do this? And what sort of a father would be prepared to do it? The earliest Christian commentators applaud Abraham. For the writer to the Hebrews, Abraham's faith is exemplary. He knew that God could raise people from the dead, and so he was prepared to sacrifice his son. Christian readers have generally approved of Abraham's actions, perhaps the most famous being Kierkegaard, who admires Abraham as the knight of faith for laying aside his sense of right and wrong in order to obey God. God's command is higher than any ethical principle. This line of thinking commends Abraham for his trust in God's goodness, for being prepared to relinquish that which is most precious to him and for foreshadowing the kind of faithfulness exemplified by Christ himself. But not all are agreed. Kant objected to God making such a demand in the first place. God wouldn't ask Abraham to do something contrary to the moral law. Kant says Abraham should have replied to this supposedly divine voice that I, I ought not to kill my good son is quite certain, he should have said, but that you, this apparition, are God, of that I am not certain, and never can be, not even if this voice rings down to me from heaven. Kant was an early lone voice, however, and most Christians have been reluctant to challenge scripture in this way until recently. Today, the distaste at the idea of God asking to suit uh, such a thing in the first place has led some critics to turn on Abraham. Accounts of killings by people who claim to have heard from God have contributed to suspicion of a religion which would ask its adherents to ask in this way. Why does Abraham argue with God about the fate of Sodom and Lot and not about the fate of his son? Moving on to Sarah, what of Sarah? Well, we're not told much about her. We know from the outset that she is barren and this is a matter of great shame. Implicitly, Abraham is seen as virtuous for having kept her as his wife. Throughout the story, she is a compliant wife going along with his wishes at considerable personal cost. First Peter commends her as the ideal wife submissive and obedient. Patristic and Jewish commentators see Sarah as representing virtue in the story. 
and are keen to preserve her chastity in Pharaoh's harem. The text gives no sense of her own relationship with God, except perhaps that she laughed at the promise. She seems to be given little or no choice in the matters that concern her. She plays no part in Abraham's religious practices and is apparently complicit in the ill-judged dealings with Pharaoh and Abimelech. She has no sphere, she has, however, her own sphere of influence in the domestic circle. In particular, she has power over Hagar, whom she treats so badly that she flees. She uses Hagar to build herself up. And when Ishmael is born, she, she resents the fact that Hagar begins to treat her with disrespect and insists that she is sent away. All this hardly shows Sarah in a good light. We may not be told of her feelings, but she is presented as thrown, which by the way is a Scottish word for grumpy. Uh, she is presented as thrown and petulant, jealous and cruel. And yet as feminist scholarship has pointed out, she, Sarah's own suffering is immense. As a woman who cannot have children, she is an object of pity and even an outcast, and she takes her grief and anger out on Hagar. As we have seen, she is given no voice at all in the Akira story. That her son is to be sacrificed is apparently no concern of hers. It is only in later Jewish Midrash that she's given any consideration. Leviticus Rabbah tells of Sarah flailing and dying when Isaac tells her what has happened. In Phyllis Tribble's view, it is Sarah rather than Isaac who is sacrificed on Moriah. After this, she and Abraham seem to separate. Tribble suggests that the Akedah incident was the death knell for Abraham and Sarah's relationship. He goes to Beersheba and she dies in Hebron. So what can we learn from this story of Father Abraham and Mother Sarah and their journey of faith? Well, we can first of all say that these are flawed characters. The traditional Protestant emphasis on faith as belief and on righteousness as a forensic declaration has tended to encourage a far less nuanced view of the patriarch than the story provides. It runs the risk of losing sight of the struggles of the journey and may even diminish our appreciation of God's grace in working through Abraham despite his many failings. And far from being the paragons of virtue that the early fathers wanted them to be, we see that Abraham and Sarah are as capable of good and evil as any other human beings. Certainly, Abraham is an example to follow in terms of belief and obedience, but he is flawed. We can imagine, we can admire also his generosity and peaceableness in his dealings with outsiders and his loyalty to his kin. And for Sarah, whose voice is so muffled and whose character does not come across at all well, we can say that she suffered much, but remained faithful and loyal in her own way. We can detect both virtue and vice in these characters. There are signs of virtue, generosity, a sense of justice, diligence, patience, but there is also cruelty and exploitation. In terms of theological virtues, it seems that wavering faith and hope are very much 
part of Abraham and Sarah's life. Agape love is rather less marked, however. We might hope that they develop in wisdom as they go on their pilgrimage, but I'm not convinced that we can see a development in their faith in the account, as some have suggested. What we have is a story of struggle and conflict. The story and its reception history teaches us, I think, to be cognizant of how our own cultural assumptions can inhibit our moral discernment. The narrator and characters operate within the constraints of their cultures. And this is especially evident with regard to the treatment of women, children and slaves. Cultural assumptions can blind us to the personhood of others and the moral dimensions of one's actions. Moreover, what is legal may not be moral. Of course, Abraham and Sarah's times are different to our own, but rather than ignore or excuse this or discard the story altogether, we must recognize that we, no less than any preceding generation, need to examine ourselves to see where our moral discernment is clouded by adherence to cultural norms. We see too that moral and spiritual discernment are very closely linked. This is highlighted in the story of the Akedah. Clemens Thomas speaks of an Akedah spirituality which has encouraged believers to live in obedient submission, accepting whatever comes to them as the testing of God. This isn't always healthy. Some of who have seen have taken it to mean that God can command to kill. The Kierkegaardian approval of Abraham is far less popular than it was, and I'm glad that this is so. According to Genesis Rabbah, a wicked angel asks why Abraham should think sacrifice his son is an acceptable thing to do. Have you lost your wits, he asked. We might not want to be visited by a wicked angel, but all spiritual discernment needs to be tested and it should be done in community. Perhaps if Abraham had consulted Sarah, for example, had she been given a voice, he might have rethought rediscerned what he thought God was telling him to do and averted much suffering in the process. And this brings us lastly to another issue. We must be discerning readers. Until recently, Christian interpreters have been uneasy with questioning the viewpoint of the narrator. We've been more comfortable with a foundationalist approach which looks to the text to tell us what to do for fear of undermining scripture's authority. But as Hauerwas says, to claim the Bible as authority is the testimony of the church that this book provides the resources necessary for the church to be a community sufficiently truthful so that our conversation with one another and God can continue across generations. As we've seen, Jewish midrash and feminist hermeneutics, amongst others, have opened up ways of looking at the story, which encourage us to look beneath the surface of the text and ask uncomfortable questions. We need to be challenged if we're to avoid interpretative hubris with all its attendant dangers. And if the church is the truthful, the truthful community of which Hauerwas speaks, we must not be afraid of examining our traditional understandings and engaging in new conversations. We've looked for moral discernment in Abraham and Sarah. Now let us cultivate in ourselves, for there is much to learn. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Marion. That was fascinating. Uh, just we've got a, a few minutes for questions uh, before we go to a break. So just a reminder, if you want to put a question in the chat or use the raise hand function, uh, that's absolutely fine. Um, but whilst you're perhaps getting your brains in gear or longing for a coffee, I'll, uh, I'll make a start. Um, I was glad at the end you kind of raised the issue around anti-foundationalism um, and the, the sort of the way in which we might question the authorial intent. Uh, I mean, it always strikes me that characters like Abraham and Sarah, whatever views we may or may have as to, you know, their historicity of them, kind of, they, they exist for us as characters in a text. And therefore they are in a sense, the puppets of the editor and authors of those texts. Um, and I, I, I just think that raises some really interesting questions as to what the author is trying to say about the nature of God through these characters. Um, so I, I guess I, I've got a question which, I, which I'll come back to about the nature of God, but a slight sidetrack just for a moment. I remember hearing Cheryl Exum, uh, the feminist Old Testament scholar, uh, talking about this passing off your wife as your sister, which of course Abraham, as you've quite helpfully pointed out, does twice. And then Isaac does it again with Abimelech in Gerar, uh, with, with, with Rebecca. Uh, and she offered a reading of that as a Freudian analysis. Uh, and whether this uncovers something about um, subverted sexual desire uh, that's coming out through the uh, through the, the narrative voice and the telling of these stories, all, all of which brings me back to what for you does this say about God? What view of God do you see coming through in these stories? That is a very interesting question, and I've been so focused on Abraham and Sarah, I haven't actually thought of that. Uh, so that. I'll need to think about that. What does it say about God? Well, I think it's more about perceptions of God. Um, that there are there are varying. It perhaps is saying that we can't, we will never fully understand God. Uh, just as as Moses will be told, and uh, you don't need to know my name. You know, I am who I am. And we, as the patriarchs and the matriarchs wrestle with the relationship of God, we're, it, it, we, we will always be flawed in our understanding of God. And there's a, in, in the Jewish tradition, of course, there's always a fluidity, isn't there? And we want in Christian life to be able to say, this is, this is what we believe and this is what we know. But in Jewish hermeneutics, it's always, uh, well, Rabbi Swoodso says this, Rabbi Swoodso says this, and there are always differing views. And, and so I think um, I'm reluctant to say that it says anything in particular about God, but it points us to our journey of, of coming to understand who this is, who this God is, uh, as, we, as people walk with him, and we will be we will make mistakes. We will uh, we will we will somehow times have glimpses, but ultimately, we don't know. <laughs> uh, that's great. Thank you so much. And I think we've just got time for a question from David, and then we'll go for a coffee. David, would you like to ask your question? Uh, Marion, just um, to ask you to reflect on uh, that the friction possibly between your call to moral discernment in our reassessment of the text and the tendency in some circles uh, to put scripture beyond human scrutiny. There is a kind of protectionism sometimes exhibited, especially by leaders when it comes to handling the text. And yet what I hear you encouraging us to do is at a congregational level to engage with the text. Just like to reflect on that for a moment. Yeah, um, I, think, I think there is a tendency often to, to try and protect the, the text. 
Um, but what I, I work as a chaplain and work with uh, marginalised people, uh, in people in addiction, people who have been in prison, people who are asylum seekers and refugees. And I intentionally with them use the contextual Bible study uh, method and find that it is so rich that if we, we don't set up this text as, as you know, some sort of, you know, this book has the answer to everything and we uh, this foundationalist view of it says, therefore I must. Uh, I'm, I find that that is very constricting. Uh, but if I'm opening up with the text uh, for people to consider themselves, we get so much more out of it and, and so much, much more richness in this discussion uh, approach. Uh, so over more and more as I get older, I'm, I, I'm less willing to even, you know, just to open up the Bible and, and say, this is what you must believe. I want to hear what people from different contexts and different cultures see in these words. And I think that just makes the Bible so, so much richer. Great. And, and that God speaks in extraordinary ways. That's been really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Marion. Thank you, David, for your question as well.